Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is it right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's go again. Perfect. COVID-19 is the biggest pandemic facing humanity in more than a century. One year in, and we are still looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Models and data have played a very crucial role in this response. In this special podcast series, we'll be talking to our fellow researchers from NSAC at the Biocomplexity Institute, University of Virginia. The team has been tirelessly supporting COVID-19 response in the U.S. at the local, state, and federal levels. And in this episode, we'll be talking to Alex Telionis, James Schlitt, and Joseph Outen about outbreak analytics. Hi, I'm Srini Venkatramanan. And I'm Erin Raymond. Let's go talk to the COVID chaser. Hi, my name is Alex Telionis, and I'm a postdoc at Biocomplexity Institute. And before that, I was with the same group at Virginia Tech for about seven years. My focus is spatial epidemiology, um, hotspot analyses, human mobility, and such. All right. Yeah, I'm Joseph Outen. I joined the Institute uh, as an undergraduate researcher um, the summer of uh, 2019. Um, I've been with them since. Uh, I graduated in 2020 with a degree in computer science and biology. Um, and so I joined them as a temp um, after that. Um, started working with the COVID delivery team in the summer of 2020. And I've been doing that since then and also working on some bioinformatics projects. Hi, my name is James Schlitt. I recently completed a postdoc with the Biocomplexity Institute. I've been working with the team since 2013 when I had just started a PhD and a Master of Public Health. And I got involved in the COVID work with dashboard development during the early epidemic and moved on to kind of more like social demographic analyses later. All right, so so you've all kind of touched on how you got involved with the COVID work, but let's talk about what you actually did from day to day. So James, you brought up the dashboard. Okay, so yeah, one of my first responsibilities in the COVID work was integrating, scraping, or otherwise just kind of collecting, hoarding, organizing as much data as possible. We had an issue where we had a lot of different data formats, both like location counts, uh, individual case lists, and very poor standardization. So one of the best ways you could work with that was try to align it so the strengths of everything could sort of gel together and visualize it. You know, while the data itself was enough for the geeks to work with, what I viewed as one of the most important things we could do was a Paul Revere Act. Bring to people's attention, this is important, this is serious, and it's not just gonna go away if we ignore it. I like that, I like that Paul Revere. The COVID is coming. The COVID is coming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph, how about you? Yeah, so the main thing that I've been involved with, um, having just graduated, is basically doing some some standard analytics for the team. Um, and so we have all these different data streams um, from a bunch of different sources. We have um, surveillance on cases and deaths and hospitalizations, um, as well as things that just kind of come up randomly throughout the epidemic and things that are a pandemic and things that we're able to grab, such as mass usage, um, colleges coming back and what their policies are, um, and and then vaccines in this most recent couple months. Um, So I've been working on kind of collecting those data streams, cleaning them up a little bit and and, um, displaying them in in, in graphical format in ways that can be um, useful to the the team and to 
potentially the policymakers that are looking at them. <laughs> yeah, we uh, some of the other folks that we've talked to on previous episodes have mentioned the the trickiness of the data, right? That it's in every different format possible, and that even as you're collecting it midstream, it changes format, and so you've got to deal with that. Have you found that has been a problem or an issue that you've had to work with? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just starting out as a data scientist, and that's one of the main things that I've uh, have have, uh, have uh, come across as a serious issue and something that is uh, kind of mashing up things like FIPS codes, which I just learned about through this through this project, which is a way to to categorize counties numerically and other regions. And I don't even know exactly what it uh, what it uh, percolates down to. So tell us quickly what is five one zero five nine. Something in Virginia. <laughs> is it Albemarle? Hopefully. <laughs> okay, it's Fairfax, but you Fairfax, <laughs> yeah. I've got the I've got the state tips down, but yeah, it's um, it's anyway. So kind of yeah, like grouping those things together, translating that between county names, which was a horrific thing I tried to do with the New York Times stream, um, and some other of the mobility streams that we had, um, and then um, yeah, just kind of. Yeah, but that kind of aligning is 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 a, is a big issue. But you know, it's fun to kind of figure out the little puzzle there. Right. So, Alex, I I see you nodding your head a bunch uh, as Joseph is talking. Those are obviously concerns that you have too, or issues that you've seen. Yeah, um, matching county names to FIPS codes is a, is a real pain um, some of the time. <laughs> so, what have you been doing uh, specifically with the COVID work? Primarily, I do. Um, anything that involves spatial analyses of our existing data. So we were looking at how well our model predicts at a, at a spatial level, at a county level. It's not that difficult to get to produce uh, accurate numbers at the statewide level. But if you zoom in and you see that some of the state's uh, counties are high and some of them are low, some counties are overpredicted and other counties are underpredicted. That's a big problem because it means you're not seeding correctly or there's not uh, you're not properly taking into account mobility. And so you can't really inform a statewide response if the overall state is accurate, but individual counties are not. So I was doing a lot of that as well as hotspot detection. So um, what areas of the state are most in need of, of help at the moment from the Virginia Department of Health and uh, stuff like that. And were you also doing some zip code analysis work? We use multiple uh, aerial units. so zip codes and FIPS codes, VDH regions and districts, as well as hospital referral and hospital service area regions. Uh, in geography, this is called the modifiable aerial unit problem, which means that as you change scales, you often get uh, different results and different outputs. So uh, there's no good solution to that, except to look at multiple scales and hope that, that things generally look the same at all different resolutions. Yeah, I think uh, you've touched upon one of the main issues that come up when dealing with spatiotemporal data. You have so many different resolutions in which the data is collected or reported and uh, just aligning them is very challenging. So maybe what, what are some of the analytic uh, views of the data, like maybe visualizations or even uh, some kind of summaries that you're really proud of? Um, I guess some of the, the work I was most proud of, I guess I didn't have much to do with the actual model output, but at the beginning, our models were not very good at predicting individual county levels, and we had some clustering of model residuals. 
which is a problem because it means that there's some underlying process we're not fully accounting for, and that makes clustered high overpredictions in one area and underpredictions in other areas. Um, the work we did recently when we were checking up on that, again, the model's doing a fantastic job. There's no autocorrelation at all. And there's, of course, a little bit of, of residuals, but they're randomly spread out across the state. So um, biocomplexities model is, is doing a fantastic job right now. And now if I can add maybe some context to it, at least, uh, because like uh, earlier models, I think we had the same challenge of how much of uh, connectivity between the counties do we need to uh, include. So we had some representations using commuter data and airline data sets, but uh, at some point as lockdowns come in and then people start changing their mobility, it becomes difficult to connect them. And then I, that that's possibly one of the reasons why we were seeing a lot of the uh, residuals being especially uh, correlated. It's, it's an incredibly difficult thing to account for, especially when you have prisons in some zip codes, which kind of throw the model off because they're in a somewhat isolated population and it's, they should not theoretically be interacting with neighboring counties as much as the general population. And half of the time we would have the top five hotspots out of, out of top five out of 10 would be counties with prisons where it was just running amok. And it was difficult to predict how they would interact with the neighboring uh, populations. I would say that I'm most proud of the dashboard and open data repo I made. You know, you know, I feel like there is just a lot of value in drawing people's attentions to the numbers, the scale and the rapidity of things as early as possible. So, you know, with the dashboard, I actually ceased updating the data after March because, you know, at that time tracking individual clusters was no longer particularly useful or you know, even viable from an open data perspective. Uh, that was for looking at sparks. And when you get to a forest fire, the sparks don't really matter quite to the same extent. But you know, I do know a lot of people engaged with that. It got a lot of viewers. And you know, a lot of people were able to plan more effectively and have a more accurate grasp of how the rest of the year was going to go thanks to these sort of publicly visible outreach efforts. Yeah, I mean, this has been mainly, I think for me, just a great learning experience. I've been able to, um, it's been a, a really new type of work and a different way of looking at science than I've ever seen before. You know, it's uh, every week there's something that needs to be done and there's a serious timeline involved with it, which, I mean, the science that I've done previously, it's very slow and, and you can sit and think and <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> and that's kind of how I, I think tend to operate, but it's been nice to um, have a change of pace and um, a more directly applicable type of work. Um, I think the one thing that I would list as like the thing I'm most, most, most interested in and um, I guess most proud of was um, I wrote a slightly more involved script that does a bit of a analysis on traje trajectories of the different county states or um, districts. Um, so different types of resolutions that I've already covered. Um, it kind of gives a sense of where um, that specific geographic region is going based on current trends. Um, and it seems to be a um, useful summary, at least to look at a big picture, kind of see where things are going. Um, so yeah, that, that's probably what I'm most proud of. Yeah, I think the, the district trajectories plot that he's talking about is actually part of the BDH weekly report that goes out. So. Uh, they've they've chosen like some some subset of 
figures that we put in the slides and they use it as part of their public messaging. And uh, this is one thing that's featured there ever since we started uh, making the trajectory plot. And in fact, we've gotten a lot of feedback from them because defining what is a trajectory for a state district uh, could be purely mathematical, but sometimes uh, it doesn't make sense when someone's looking at the curve and we keep going back and forth. Should we make absolute uh, decisions, which every uh, district get, gets applied the same rule, or do we have to make it different because of the different levels of case rates? And and it's been sometimes like we've gotten, uh, I mean, at least we've heard from them, like some districts, like, why are we the only ones in search? And uh, and so there, there's always, I think that it, it, it gives you a really good picture, but also points to how analytics is not like a fully automatable thing that you need a human in the loop to give feedback and also test it out in terms of who's the end user. So I think uh, that, that that I really like. I mean, I think we uh, rolled it out for the national also uh, for, for, at the state level. That's something that I'm really happy that came out of this analytics work also. Yeah, it was fun to do it. <laughs> it's seen a lot of iteration, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that uh, to Joe's point about it not being the traditional slow science that he's used to, it's this entire institute has always been just on it. Whenever a new epidemic came out, we would just divert everything to that and we would, it, it was exciting and exhausting and, and we've worked on every major epidemic in the last 10 years. I've, I'm personally gone through Zika, two different Ebola outbreaks, measles, MERS, cholera, chikungunya, pretty much everything. And it's the most exciting part of being at this institute was whenever there's a disaster of epidemic proportions, <laughs> uh, the first thing that happens is, is we divert our effort on that. And we're doing some groundbreaking stuff with all of these diseases. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that EVD 68 outbreak a couple of years ago? Yeah. A bunch of college students are getting flaccid paralysis out of nowhere. Maybe we have the next polio. Thankfully, you know, like it disappeared without explanation. Yeah, people are going to pay a lot more attention to those quiet little outbreaks in the future after this. Yeah, hopefully. I think James and Alex have the, uh, I mean, at least in terms of like, you, you both were also graduate students with the group. Uh, and then like uh, you you transitioned to postdocs. And I think as Alex summarized, like for every epidemic response, there's, there's always someone who needs to quickly hack together some analytics. And then there's someone who needs to prepare these maps that convey the information and James and Alex are the folks that we go to. <laughs> and uh, I think they've built out some really cool ways of summarizing information as Alex rightly put, like without that institutional memory and also all the platforms that you've built, all the, even the terminology. I think if I recall correctly, Alex, uh, you have a geography background and a public health background, whereas James has a GBCB background and like I'm purely from electrical engineering and get, getting us to talk the same language itself is a big deal. And getting us to do that when there is a crisis out there, uh, it cannot be done uh, from uh, zero. So it, uh, you need to have some kind of rapport and like, the team needs to work together. So maybe uh, one thing that maybe all of you can weigh in on, like part of one challenge that we had to face was working remotely uh, through all of this. Maybe after a month of early response, we just had to go back. How did that change the way you interacted like what were your takeaways from that that kind of a workflow yeah the honest answer is you know we function very well as an interdisciplinary team and we've had access to some incredible technology you know we're well bonded well integrated uh you know we had every advantage but 
you know, I will say this year, just not being able to gather around a whiteboard, point at the same line of pseudocode, you know, horrible five second drawing and say, does this make sense to you? And, you know, just butt heads until we actually come up with something that makes sense to everyone sitting around. Uh, you know, I feel like that was a pretty substantial loss. You know, we organized quite well to respond to the shutdown, like the check-ins were magic. Uh, you know, I appreciated like the weekly mixers and, you know, a lot of people did whatever they could to make this year better. But ultimately, if you're a human on the face of this planet and not an uncontacted tribe, this year has been either spent in complete blissful ignorance or a significant loss. Yeah. How about for you, Joe? I mean, this is, you worked with us in person for a little bit before we went remote. So you got to experience that. I mean, early in the pandemic, it was it was nice to, be able to go home because you know I just graduated college, so I, I appreciated being able to go and see my family and also work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think uh, being part of the team, the delivery team, and um, doing this work with everyone has um, just made me appreciate that there is a lot of really a lot of really great researchers here. <laughs> Um, whereas, you know, I, I, I worked at the Institute and in the office previously, but I don't think I had really taken advantage of just kind of the caliber and number and friendliness of everyone that's at the Institute. Um, so I think I'm, I'm excited for when we can, if we can it's be, together, be <laughs> yeah. in person, because I think the things that Alex and James mentioned were, uh, are significant and I think it's. Well, I think it'd be cool to experience that. <laughs> yeah. And I'd like to add that I think we did a lot of our best work in, in like a burst mode of working where a disaster would hit and we would all just cluster together and just work really hard until we got a solution. And not being able to do that has really set us back. Um, I remember one of the first things James and I ever did when we got to this institute was uh, try to place Ebola treatment units in Liberia. And they wanted, they told us to do that on Friday at one and they wanted it at 8 a.m. on Monday morning. So we just got all together with the whiteboard and our computers and we were able to just put something together and not being able to work face to face and, and point at the same computer. And it's just so much harder. Yeah, it's not as easy as just pointing at a screen as like, let me find where the share screen button is. Let, uh, oh, I'm on mute. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Right. And then can you see that? Can you see, did you see my screen? Can everyone see that? Yeah. You have to go through all of that, right? Yeah. Plus you can't interrupt your friend with a Zoom call every 30 seconds where you could just yell across a desk if you needed something. Yeah. I think like, uh, as Alex said, like we are, we are used to doing it in bursts. So doing it in bursts for one year at a, at a stretch, that's a different game. And uh, yeah, all the all these smaller cues matter, like in the long run. Like it may not matter if suddenly for one week someone's working remotely and the rest of the team. So n minus one is in physical proximity, and then one person is working remotely. It might suck for that one person, but like the others uh, might be able to get get him up to speed fa fast enough. But then like if everyone's facing their own work life balance and while trying to respond to something that's very important uh, at various scales. I think we've tried our best. Uh, I, I would say like we've learned in the process. Yeah, even in terms of just support, just being part of a team and having your colleagues and your friends 
even just hanging out at the coffee machine for 20 minutes a day, it makes a huge difference to your mentality and your morale. Yeah, but what are some uh, what are some tools or some things that you guys wish that that we had had on day one? You know, would that that might have made you more effective or changed the way that you responded to things, particularly from an anal from a data analytics standpoint. I mean, are there tools that you had to make? Are there things that we had to create because they didn't exist? Or even know-how, like it may not be a particular tool, but like just that information, if you had just known this, it could be a procedural thing, it could be a way of reaching some person and all of that. Like we learned a lot. And uh, if you could go back Feb 2020 and then tell someone, just don't forget this. Right. Go back to yourself. So you're going to the time machine, back to yourself. Now remember, you know, 2020, James, this is what you need to know. I would say, don't forget to invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> There's a lot of nuance that I was not aware of in hotspot analysis and detection. And, okay. Uh, one of our colleagues that we did our PhD with in this institute is now at the CDC as their hotspot analyst. And we've been communicating back and forth on our conclusions together, whereas this is more of an art than a science. And it's a huge uh, endeavor to try and find where the disease is surging and, and if it's just an artifact and if the neighboring counties are affecting it. So it's... I was not prepared for how much that would be. From a epidemiological forecasting perspective, I really struggle or struggle to find fault with the work that was done. You know, realistically, you wouldn't check the weather to see what's what the odds of rain are one month in the future. So actually integrating like millions of not entirely rational, not entirely predictable human behaviors across an entire social geopolitical landscape is nearly impossible. But you know, what I can say is if you look at the very early case fatality rates, uh, you know, reproduction number estimates and all that, just straight the numbers out of China were quite good. You know, even some of the numbers off the cruise ship cluster were fairly consistent with what we've looked at now. So, you know, back from March, we were really able to tell people how this year was going to go. Uh, if there's one thing that I wish we would have had better, it it's not a trivial thing or just a pip install, get the tool. But the challenge was that we had fragmented messaging and that left everyone to put on their epidemiologist hat and try to fill the gap. So unified messaging from the very beginning, just simple things, wear a mask, stay at home would have been fantastic. Uh, you know, not having the patchwork of state by state, county by county response, but you know, otherwise research wise, if I could have repeated last year, I would have probably devoted my entire time to message mapping on social media, just trying to find ways to kind of work against some of the automated and human disinformation out there and better ways to drive more health positive decision making from the get go. I thought after a certain human cost was born that our behaviors would change drastically. And we see a rubber banding effect where this happens is the most practical analogy where people slow down for a week, but you don't cure the underlying pathology. You know, people keep going back to making the same mistakes rather than permanently learning a message. And I think one of the challenges with COVID is it is just survivable enough that we drastically underestimate it. You know, I feel that something twice as lethal 
we may have responded far more effectively to than we actually have in the last year on an individual yeah. level. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much, all of you, for chatting with us. We will uh, certainly do future episodes. We can dig a little deeper maybe into the technical aspects of the analytics. But thanks for joining thank us. Okay. Thank you. Thank Good you. to see you all. All right. That's it for this episode of COVID Chasers. Subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to our website, biocomplexity.virginia.edu forward slash NSSAC, NSAC. Or follow us on Twitter at UVA underscore NSAC. Stay safe and see you next time. On the next episode of COVID Chasers. I mean, I try to say simple, but it's not that simple. I mean, make it simple is not simple. Where is this located and which person should I talk to? <laughs>